0: What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael Pina of SB Nation. Now, Michael, you have not been introduced yet to my alter ego, Captain Accountability. And frankly, you know, since stepping into this host chair, I've tried to strike you know a more dignified approach on this podcast, maybe a little bit of a Peter Jennings vibe. Um, but right now, I'm about to lose my mind. Okay, I'm coming in super hot off a Tuesday night game between the Los Angeles Clippers uh, and the Phoenix Suns, and kind of the big headline story from that game was DeAndre Ayton, the number one pick who had been suspended for 25 games for drugs, was making his first game back uh, since the suspension, and the Suns are going through some injury issues, so it actually wound up being like a really good showcase environment, all right? Here comes this guy, lots of hype as a number one pick. Obviously, they took him over Luka, they took him over Trey, and this is going to be sort of his opportunity to reintroduce himself to the NBA, kind of a low-pressure environment. You know, you're expecting them to get killed by the Clippers, so let's see what he can do. I promise the Suns fans who are going to say, oh God, here goes Ben, killing our favorite team again, that I went into last night with an open mind. I promise you guys, I did that. I got some serious concerns, Michael, and it's going to start before the game even began. All right. Uh, Monty Williams does his uh, pregame press conference. It's done. DeAndre Ayton's not even in the building yet. Uh, they got stuck. The, the second bus, according to ESPN.com, uh, got stuck in LA traffic. And so, you know, DeAndre Ayton gets there to do his pregame media availability, and he has to explain why he's showing up late because he's on the second bus. DeAndre. You need to hear this, and I don't think anyone in your life is telling you this. At this moment of your career, there is only one bus for you. It's not the second bus. It's the first bus. You need to be there early. You need to be showing your commitment. You need to be doing everything that you possibly can do to regain the trust and respect factor from your organization. Just to recap, your GM had to put out a press release saying how disappointed they were in you. Your coach has had to take questions about you being out of the lineup for months. Your teammates have had to work without you for months. And most importantly, basketball was taken away from you for months. What do we always hear from guys like Kevin Durant? You know, these people who are absolute basketball addicts when they get injured, how painful it is to be to have it feel like basketball has been taken away. That's what you just went through. Not only should you be on the first bus, you should have slept at the arena the night before, DeAndre. You got to show us what you're really about. And and we've been listening for really years to people questioning how much do you love the game. Uh, you know, are you this like you know, are you too happy-go-lucky? And I don't have a problem with the personality stuff. I think it's completely possible to be like Shag and you know a goofy guy off the court and a killer on the court. That's fine. Uh, but let's see the commitment. And the problem was, I'm not just picking on this whole bus thing. He can't control LA traffic, but he can control his plan to get to the arena and the message that he wants to send. I didn't think it sent a good message that he showed up late. Then you get into the game, I mean, way too eager to settle for these mid-range jumpers. And I'll promise you this he could hit 200 straight mid-range jumpers in a playoff series. That's not going to win a playoff series. This is not a rant against a mid-range jumper. It's just he is not going to do it. He's not going to carry a team with that shot. He needs to find some other weapons offensively to really get engaged. He was not working hard enough to me to establish post position. I know I'm sounding like Shaq right now. I know I'm sounding like Barkley. It's just a fact. He's not working hard enough to set screens. So many times, Phoenix ball handlers, Look at him when he comes up to set the screen, and they just go the other way because it's like whatever. Um, defensively, I didn't think he was enough of a paint presence. I didn't think he was contesting uh, for you know rebounds and traffic with enough force. He did have one nice block shot on kind of a help situation, so I'm going to give him credit there. And I'm not even going to hold the traveling violations and the other turnovers that are just sort of like natural, uh, you know, in a first game back type environment against him, uh, but. There are situations where transition play is going the other direction. He's not even getting back, back past half court, you know, and he admitted afterwards he's tired, you know, he's he's feeling gassed. He should be gassed. You should be out there trying to play every single minute, not coming off the court, running like crazy, playing with more energy than every single other player on the court. You have something to prove, DeAndre Ayton. You've been away from the game for two months. I didn't see that level of effort. Uh, I wish I had. And then to top it off, later in the game, he kind of tweaks his ankle. It doesn't look that bad. He's kind of like, you know, hobbling on it or whatever else. And his post-game press conference, he said, you know, know, the game was kind of already out of reach. So there's just no point in, in playing on it. DeAndre, there's a point in playing on it. You need basketball reps. You have not played for like two months and you've got the weight of an organization on your shoulders. You're supposed to be the franchise guy. And the vibe there, it's not that at all. Clearly, it's Booker's team, right? And he was injured, so that's a different story. But after the after the game, you know, he gets out of the shower, he looks around the locker room, he's like, "Where, where is everybody?" Well, they they're already on the bus, they're ready to go, they're not waiting on you, you know. They're not waiting to like you know chop it up and have this great conversation. Oh yeah, DeAndre's our guy. Not at all. I mean, quite quite the opposite. I mean, I think Kelly Oubre even said. Oh, DeAndre Ayton, he's just one piece of our puzzle. He's not our, you know, and he's not try, trying basically to keep the pressure off of DeAndre Ayton in terms of the the return to the court. But I thought that was a telling comment, man. You got to earn these guys respect. You got to make sure that they treat you like you're a centerpiece of that organization. That you know you're the player who was picked with the number one selection uh, and was sort of deemed to be you know a potential All Star. And that's just not the vibe there. It, it looks to me like he's just sort of another guy on their squad. He hasn't found his footing. He hasn't found that respect factor. I'm not in their locker room every single day. I can just tell you what I saw. It was a strange environment. It was not what you usually see from rising stars uh, by any stretch. Uh, and even how Monty Williams talked about him, it's like, oh, you know, he focused a lot on his physical gifts, uh, you know, like his, his amazing strength and, and, and quickness and agility and all that. And absolutely, it's a breathtaking package. But what was left out is how is he impacting the game in winning ways? Is he shooting three pointers? Is he dominating around the glass? Is he dunking relentlessly? Is he blocking shots? Is he captaining the defense? And not a lot of that stuff was taking place. So he goes out there and he gets his, you know, 18 and 12, kind of like popcorn numbers. And sure cool. They lose by 20. There's no major impact. uh, And he goes home early after showing up late. I mean, all of that stuff to me, it was just not an impressive first impression at all. There's no other way for me to put it. Uh, And I hope that he starts to take some ownership here. He starts to understand the, the burden and the responsibility. If he wants to be that max guy on his second contract, if he wants to earn back trust from the fan base and from everybody else, he needs to start carrying himself in a different way. I, I enjoyed every second of that. Uh, I did not watch the
1: the Clippers-Suns game, <clears throat> but I was on the edge of my seat. I'm glad I didn't, honestly, because I was on the edge of my seat for that entire rant. So bravo to you, and uh,
0: DeAndre, be better tomorrow. I feel so much better. That was weighing on my chest, Michael. It really was. And I mean, the, the thing that really bothers me about it is I would hate to have basketball taken away for two months. I don't know what I would do. I would probably go stir crazy. Like I don't have a lot else going on in my life. And for people who are able to, you know, really do basketball and keep a balanced life, I envy you. That's not me. But the idea that, you know, he's basically being locked out of arenas when his team is playing because of that drug suspension. So he can't be there. That would be such an effective punishment. Like if my parents had concocted something like that, uh when I was in middle school, they could have gotten me to do anything. <laughs> I wouldn't have been able to function, right? And just to kind of see just from start to finish, like I said, showing up late, kind of going through the motions, you know, not wanting to,, uh, you know fight through the ankle injury. I mean, send a message to your teammates. You're back, you know, hobble around on the ankle a little bit. Let's see it. It wasn't that serious as an of an injury. And unfortunately, that's just not what we got. I did like the fact, though, after the game, he admitted, that the pace of Phoenix's offense is something that he has to adjust to he was talking about how well his teammates are moving the ball so I do think he's seeing some of the progress and development that took place when he was out uh, and that's a good thing Uh, and I think he understands that he needs to put some of that it's his responsibility to kind of find a way to fit in and and not expect them to build everything around him so he's got the right mentality I think from that standpoint Uh, but the rest of it I mean come on let's recommit All right, Michael. Thank you for for bearing with me on that one. Uh, It's been a while. Uh, Feels good, like I said, to get that off my chest. We have a lot to get through on today's episode, starting with an awesome question from Stavros in Australia, one of our longest and and most loyal listeners. And it's a perfect timing question. He writes in, Star Wars is out, so everybody is psyched for classic battles of good and evil. Without post-decision LeBron or the dominant warriors to hate on, there is a villainous void uh, that has been left for the NBA. Does the league currently have a heel? And does the NBA need a villain to be successful? After all, classic stories of good versus evil are so popular. So Michael, this is a perfectly timed question from Stavros because we had um, a late breaking beef Between uh, Kevin Garnett and LeBron James, where basically Kevin Garnett told the Bill Simmons podcast that the Celtics, quote unquote, broke LeBron, forcing him to leave Cleveland for Miami on on the team up uh, Heatles strategy uh, in 2010. Um, So, you know, obviously LeBron's fans are are up in arms that anyone would say anything negative about him. And uh, the Celtics fans are just loving that KG is going right at (laughs) one of their long term rivals. So I guess first of all, let's let's break down this KG versus LeBron thing because I know KG is one of your all-time favorite players. Uh, Is he right? Uh, And is KG the type of heel that the NBA is missing? Well, I think I think KG is
1: right because I'm pretty sure at some point I I can't recall when, but LeBron uh, basically admitted that you know he was model when he went to Miami. It was modeled after the big three that the Celtics put together with KG, Paul Pierce, and Ray Allen, and he didn't have enough talent. He said multiple times that he never had enough talent around him in Cleveland to get past the Boston Celtics. Came close a couple times, but uh, could never get over the hump. Uh, So goes to Miami, teams up with uh, two Hall of Famers who are in their primes, and they are able to squeak past the Boston Celtics in, for two two years in a row. And uh, so, uh, to to I, I mean, I KG is he's a person. He's obviously a one of a kind personality. And I think it's awesome that he is still so intense with his firm belief that they broke LeBron James, despite. Uh, I mean, I kind of think that he means it in a in a complimentary way, in a in a way that you know they push LeBron to deep di- deep di- to dig deep down inside himself and find new parts of his game and to actually become a champion and you know get the post. Remember uh, back in two thousand nine, two thousand eight, two thousand ten, that era when a lot of the criticism about LeBron was that he didn't have a post game and he couldn't shoot and. Yada, yada, yada. And he kind of uh, was forced because of the Celtics and because of other teams like the Spurs to uh, to add those parts uh, to his game and to improve. So, um, yeah, this is uh, all in all just kind of an awesome thing to, to hear. I love anytime KG speaks up. I'm so happy he's in this movie and is going on this tour. Uh, around promoting it and gets to say ridiculous things uh, about his past and his career. And uh, the NBA definitely does miss Kevin Garnett. Well,
0: I'll tell you this. I mean, the publicists have just got to be so happy, right? It's like, what a great way to just own, uh, you know, the, the publicity cycle by going straight at LeBron. Um, so, a couple of thoughts on the KG side of it. First of all, I think he perfectly proved Stavros's point here, right, of the value of a heel because. Uh, you know, I understand maybe you have some Boston ties personally, but that team for everyone else around the country was so unbelievably easy to hate. Right. And, um, for years and years, that whole group, um, and, you know, I think KG with his on court antics, you know, being polarizing was a huge part of it for the fact that he would just, you know, not back down from any challenge, uh, was another big part of it, um, and you know, the intimidation factor, the, the the Celtics' aura, their history, kind of looming over everything. That was part of it too. And we saw it when Le- LeBron walked off the court early uh, in 2010 mm-hmm. after that playoff loss. I don't know if I want to say that they broke him forever, but they certainly pushed him out. You know, it was more than a nudge, right? He realized that he had to change up the formula, or he was going to be right back, th- right back there. Uh, you know, a year or two down the line. So, uh, you know, the word broke, I think people, it's, you know, it's open to interpretation, but I think his general premise is right. He pushed LeBron to a, a different stage of his career. The Celtics pushed LeBron to a different stage of their career. However, don't we need to point out that we we KG can't really hold the consolidation aspect of the heat against LeBron because the Celtics were also a consolidated team, right? Like Boston went out and traded for, for KG. Boston went out and traded for Ray Allen. Um, you know, they get lost in this kind of super team conversation because it wasn't this like free agency spectacular, but that was a super loaded team. And, uh, you know, it, it seems like when he's saying, Oh, we broke LeBron. Now he has to resort to consolidation. It does seem like he's leaving out a pretty important fact about how that team was created too. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I, I do think that
1: <clears throat> the—I mean, one of the great things about that rivalry uh, was, I mean, the, the in my opinion, the greatest LeBron performance, which was in the 2012 playoffs, I believe, Game 5 or Game 6 in Boston. The one where he just had that look in his eyes. It was a do-or-die situation in the Garden and he just came out and he hit basically every shot in the first half, and he finished with some ungodly amount of points, and he, he, he ripped the heart out of that Celtics era. So that was just, that
0: was, that yeah. was an incredible. 2000, 2012, game six, Boston. I was there. Uh, didn't know I was pretty early in my uh, NBA right. career. Uh, I. I'm not sure that I was fully prepared for it. I remember just sitting there in kind of slack-jawed awe that this was, you know, taking place. I remember thinking, is this like a TV show? Like, is this scripted? Like, how is he <laughs> doing this in exactly this manner? It's just unbelievable. Uh, and then I also remember in game one of, uh, I guess it was uh, the 2018 finals being like, well, I never thought I was going to see LeBron turn in like a better all-around game <laughs> than the one... Uh, in 2012 against Boston, but I think he might have just done it, and Jr. Smith just threw it away. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was at that game, uh, the game one of the
1: finals, and uh, I'll never forget, like, the reaction to just watching Jr. what he was doing, where I was sitting. I think I was in your section, potentially, I can't recall, but uh, yeah, that was momentous. But uh, yeah, the, the, I mean, the, the general point here is that the NBA does need villains. They need people maybe not villain is a is a strong word because i personally think kg is just a big teddy bear just so lovable um but having someone who's able to push greatness to even higher even higher level i think that's what the league for sure needs and we had that with Uh, with the Warriors trying to push LeBron. uh, And in that particular game, we got a classic performance, even though they lost, because he needed to do absolutely everything he could. He knew uh, that he needed to dig deep inside himself and attack on basically every possession. And uh, he couldn't take any plays off. He couldn't take any seconds off in that game. And we saw greatness because of it. So from that perspective, I think, you know, villains or just Adversaries, uh, strong adversaries, uh, are c- are critical
0: to the NBA. No question. And I'm I'm wondering, do we have one right now? Because I think the most obvious candidate would be the Lakers uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, they're the Lakers, and they've been polarizing their whole time, right? I mean, Showtime, glitz, glamour, all of it. Second, LeBron goes there as a free agent. You know, some people are going to resent the Hollywood move, and then they they force their way into getting Anthony Davis through like the least suave courtship of all time, right? Uh, just absolute brute force in, in getting Anthony Davis there. So this should be the super team that everybody sort of reviles and hates, and the small market fans are, are not uh, in favor of whatsoever. And yet, the LeBron factor does seem to complicate it because he hasn't spent that much time during his career as the bad guy. There was that brief stretch early in the Miami tenure where he was trying to channel it uh, and you know basically you know wear the black hat, and it didn't really work for him. And his popularity as he's been aging, uh, I think he's getting himself into like sort of a almost a universal respect category from a lot of people where. Uh, you know, some of the stuff, the bitterness that he faced earlier in his career for leaving Cleveland and all of that has kind of wiped away. And so I guess I'm kind of curious. I'm here in Los Angeles. Obviously, they're very popular here. I mean, do you feel like the Lakers, this version of the Lakers are now the new NBA heel? Or do you sort of get what I'm saying? We're like, yeah, no, they're kind of too much the good guys to be the bad guy, right?
1: Yeah, I mean the Lakers are the Lakers. So when they're good, I think a lot of the country despises them, and and a lot of fan bases are super jealous just because of the attention that they get. With this team, I almost feel like they're a feel good story. Like they're getting such great contributions out of players that we 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 thought were washed up and completely done. Uh, Rondo, Dwight Howard, um, guys like Alex Caruso contributing. Um, it's just, it's it's kind of cool to see. And I don't think anyone really expected yeah. them to be as good
0: as they've been either. That's the thing, right? They're overachieving too, on top of it. <laughs> like somehow this like glitz and glamour show is like this overachieving underdog. It kind of doesn't make any sense. I mean, underdog is stretching it a little bit, but they're definitely uh, surpassing expectations even from what, you know, like educated basketball people thought coming into the season. Yeah. Um, I, can I can I go on to a
1: different villain that I, I think, uh, like, it's it's just, I, I don't know if the Lakers, I feel like there is a sentiment, and if they continue to succeed, that a majority of, of fans around the NBA will start to detest them again. And, you know, if they continue this romp throughout the, the regular season, and they don't suffer any from any adversity and they can can stay as healthy as possible and you know ad doesn't miss two weeks with a sprained ankle that he could probably play on um then maybe people will uh you know start to get a little jealous which is 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 possible
0: but right don't those those casual fans have to choose though do do they hate the lakers or are they going to be willing to root for lebron to get his fourth title Right right, and I think that he's I think he's worked his way into a situation where like I said, I think a lot of people are um you know most casual fans are pro LeBron at this point where that wasn't necessarily the case at previous stages of his career and I think it's partly because of age. I think um, his relationship with his kids definitely helps him for sure. I think the the chase with Jordan people are always gonna be fascinated by that um so yeah, I'm wondering like even if they do win 65 games this year like are they gonna enter? The playoffs as the bad guy? I mean, they're certainly an intimidating force. We see them scaring teams kind of time and time here, um, you know, at at various points uh, this regular season already. But are they going to really have like capturing the national imagination as the bad guys? I don't know. So do you have another candidate that you want to throw out there? I have a couple.
1: Um, I mean, when, when I first read this question, the player who popped into my head was James Harden. And then I was kinda like, the Rockets probably aren't good enough for him to be taken seriously as a villain. Like he's he's just a kind of, he's a figure who I think a lot of people are annoyed by. And we've talked a lot about that in previous episodes about just, you know, aesthetically and stylistically how he plays and getting to the free throw line and his complaints about getting double teamed. And I think a lot of fan bases are, are, are sick of him. Uh, I personally enjoy watching him play and think he's amazing. Um, So that was my my first player who I was like, oh, this is a villain, but he's not really going up against anything. And I don't think like I, I just think he's too. It's it sounds ridiculous to call him irrelevant. But when we just had that conversation about the Lakers and LeBron and all that they're trying to accomplish and all he's trying to accomplish individually, it's just a little different from it's like a step down when you start talking about Harden and the Rockets.
0: For sure, we have some pretty good test case too, right? Because supposedly the Warriors were the team that everybody loved to hate, right? They were the villains supposedly. But when they went head to head against the Rockets in the playoffs, the casual fans were not like gaping for no. James Harden and his style of and play, Chris right? Paul. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it it was more like, okay, let's, you know, let's watch the Warriors beat these guys again and then make fun of them for losing, right? That was the more general reaction. So I think you're right. Like I think Harden himself is a great heel. I think that he leans into it for sure with his innovative style of play with the beard, uh with all of it. But I don't know if the Rockets as a franchise or an organization have kind of cultivated, you know, that reputation and it could just be because they're they're not quite talented enough this year to sort of have that role right. where everyone's going to be rooting against them. It's funny because you know, and this is, you know, pure Giannis Inc. propaganda, but I feel like Giannis is positioned like an absolute quintessential, you know, good guy, white hat type of character, right? I mean, homegrown, came from nothing, uh, hasn't um, left Milwaukee yet, trying to get them over the hump in Jordan-like fashion, built the whole team around him, plays hard every single night, plays offense, plays defense, leads, um, you know, is a, Family-friendly guy has the endorsement deals, has a sneaker now. Like everything is just lined up perfectly for him to be sort of the the white hat, and then LeBron sort of because he's on this big market team theoretically would be lined up as the black hat, the obvious black hat. Uh, but I don't, I don't think it's going to quite develop like that. I think LeBron's sort of gotten over that hump. The other team that I wonder about could the Clippers. Wind up stepping into this void, right? Yes, yes. I mean, yes, could yes. we see a scenario where someone's like, "Yeah, the Clippers talk about the black top team and all this, but their owner is the richest guy in the league, and they, you know, they did whatever they needed to do to get the star power. They're going to build a new brand new arena and everything else. These guys are fronting as this, uh, you know, this, uh, this black top team. It's not really who they are. They're this you know, another flashy LA team." you know, that's, you know, been put together through kind of unfair means, you know, by forcing Oklahoma City's hand. And so therefore, they become the villain. What do you think? I had,
1: I actually had Kawhi Leonard written down here. Because, you know, whenever I talk to my casual NBA fan friends who, you know, they're not diehards, but they follow the league close enough, like nobody likes Kawhi Leonard. And I think there's a variety of reasons for that. One, he's just It's really difficult to relate to him. It's really difficult. He's not like an endearing character. He's cold and uh, very stony. Uh, But uh, they also attribute, you know, the load management thing, which a lot of casual fans just absolutely despise. And he's kind of the face of that. And even though it's, in my opinion, completely justified, and he is in the right to do what he wants with his body and his career, he only gets one of those. And also, it worked for him last year. They won the championship. Uh, I can see where fans are coming from who will, you know, turn on ESPN or turn on TNT, hoping to see a, a Clippers nationally televised game, and he's not on the court, and they get very upset by that. And so I have Kawhi here as a villain. Now, do you agree with that?
0: No, that's a really good call. I can definitely see um, where you're coming from on that. I do think that the better the Clippers are, the easier it is to paint them as a villain. I, I think Paul George... Has kind of gone both ways. I think in general he's fairly likable, but when he's had some of these postseason moments, I have seen people turn against him, call him a choker, you know, late game, uh, unreliable, and, and those kinds of things. So there is potential, I think, for them to be, you know, in this scenario. I think Beverly is obviously very polarizing, and you know, <laughs> here locally in LA, he's like incredibly popular, but uh, there's lots of places around the league that hate him. The Clippers are always in the mix, you know, fighting with various teams, usually the Rockets, but not only the Rockets. Um, So I think the bad blood aspect, I think there's some people who are kind of over Doc too. You know, I personally think Doc is just an amazing quote and a really important person from just a personality standpoint for the league. I love Doc. But I could see some, you know, fatigue factor there. So the more I'm thinking about this, if we're trying to set up the evil villain of the 2020 uh, playoffs... I think it almost has to be the Clippers.
1: Yeah, I think that that's fair. I thought uh, I have a couple things. One, when you you mentioned Paul George and how you know some fans may not be you know big on him because of how he's come up short in the postseason, it got me thinking about how there may not be a collective uh, target in terms of uh, someone who's a villain or a team that's a villain. But I feel like. With certain fan bases, certain fan bases have villains, like the Celtics have Kyrie, the Pelicans have AD, the Pacers still hate Paul George. I mean, his comments after he left uh, Indianapolis about how don't boo me, you know, whoever's still here, that's who you need to be booing. Uh, Clearly, there's still bad blood there. Um, So I think like, from a national perspective, we might be still looking for... Uh, a villain, uh, uh, someone who uh, can be like those Warriors teams and the, that that pre championship LeBron. But from just like a, you're looking at it from just a fan base perspective. Like some fan bases really hate certain individuals, and it's it's. Uh, I think it's a byproduct of the free agency
0: era. Yeah, for sure. Just like we're talking about, you know, fans becoming more player fans rather than team fans. I think it's the same thing the other way, right? Like they're. For sure. They're rooting against specific guys rather than specific teams. A couple other players who have heel potential to me would be like Joel Embiid or uh, Jimmy Butler. But it's funny because like in the case of Miami, it's you have this like, you know, guy who loves to be hated on a team that's like completely lovable. Like all these young guys just like completely playing over their heads, yeah. playing really hard um, and, you know, great environment. They, they do things the right way. So that one's tricky. And then with Philadelphia, I could actually see them maybe being pretty good heels here as well. You've got Simmons, who's just, his personality is, you know, he just really doesn't give much to the media, kind of off-putting, uh, you know, too cool for school. You've got Embiid, who's like very up and down, kind of unreliable night to night. But when he plays well, we'll just say all sorts of reckless and oftentimes inappropriate things. You've got them... Kind of saying, oh, you guys want to play small ball with shooting? No, we're going to go completely the opposite direction. So stylistically, they're almost heels in terms of you know aesthetics and how they play. Um, you know, Tobias Harris is a pretty nice guy, so that one is tricky. Um, <laughs> maybe they'd have to trade him to really like ramp up the uh, the heel factor. But I would say if it's not the Clippers, it, it might be the Sixers. That's actually a really good call. I,
1: I have no idea how I didn't think of Joel Embiid, who is as much a he- like a wrestling heel as anyone in the league. I mean, two years ago, before the uh, Celtics Sixer series, he was on the the training table eating grapes, like just <laughs> relaxing before <it> game <laughs> came by. Like he's he's hilarious. He he plays it up, and I think that the better he is and the better the Sixers are, that's obviously better for the NBA from the vantage point of this entire discussion about needing villains and needing adversaries. So yeah, that's Embiid is a great
0: call. All right. Thank thank you for to Stavros for that awesome question. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golver with a message from Mattress Firm. The only thing better than watching your team win is a perfect nap. And Mattress Firm's President's Day sale lets you get a king mattress for a queen price or a queen mattress for a twin price for savings of up to $600. And you can take home a free adjustable base with a qualifying purchase. But you have to hurry. The clock is ticking on this sale. It's ending soon. Isn't it time you saved and slept like a champion? Shop now. Mattressfirm.com. Mattressfirm.com for the President's Day sale. We are going to keep it moving with some other questions. We got one, another one from Australia, from Ash. He writes as a longtime NBA fan, I'm growing more and more disillusioned with the way some players try and angle their way to contenders after signing hefty contracts. Kevin Love is the perfect example. He very happily took Cleveland's max offer after LeBron left. Now he's not happy on a bottom dweller and is agitating for a trade. Call me old school, but he should just be knuckling down, taking pride in hard work and playing hard, leading by example. It's time for guys like Love and his ilk to accept reality. Not everyone can get paid and be on a contender. So we've definitely got we're, we're treading back onto uh, old man territory for sure. After my DeAndre Ayton, uh, you know, rant a little bit earlier, but does Ash have a point? Are these are players in this player empowerment era trying to have it both ways in sort of a an unseemly manner? I don't think so, because I mean,
1: I think the the parallel counterpoint here is what happened with Blake Griffin and the Los Angeles Clippers, where it's like the teams also have a ton of power. You know, he signs this deal. He thinks he's Blake signs this max contract, thinks he's going to be there. Clipper for life. He's got T-shirts with Nelson Mandela and Barack Obama on them. And uh, he's really feeling the love. And then they trade him almost immediately mid-se- that, I think it yeah. was that, that same season, a couple months later, to the Detroit Pistons. So, like.
0: Yeah. So he, he went to bed in Hollywood and he woke up in Detroit. I mean, everyone's worst nightmare. Brutal. Um, shout out to my wife who is from Detroit. Um, yeah, my whole family's from
1: <laughs> Michigan. <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah, but I mean, my stance here is generally like, if you're a player, like get your money. Like, I don't, I'm not really here to root for owners and organizations. I think if a player is presented with a, a humongous contract, he could not otherwise get on the open market by anyone, he should sign it. And the Cavs, like the Cavs don't think for one second that the Cavs would not trade Kevin Love. Uh, if they had an offer that they loved, uh, no pun intended, that they that they uh, that they thought would set them up in the future better than he could, so I I, I think that players I don't really have I don't really fault Kevin Love for wanting out. Who wants to be in a miserable situation? It's not entirely his. I, I guess it's not it's not his fault necessarily, but I mean. He should want to be—he only has so many years in his career, and he's he's over the over 30, and if he wants to play for a contender, he should be able to try to force his way
0: there. That The Cavs don't have to trade him. No, you're, you're making a lot of really level-headed points. I think the one thing that I would add is he needs to be playing hard throughout the situation, no matter what. And I think that's absolutely something that we can criticize him for from the effort-level standpoint. Sure. I don't think— that he's doing enough leading by example, like Ash is talking about. I think it's completely reasonable for him to want out after the coach changed, the two other stars left, they hired a new coach, they've got two young guards, um, you know, lottery pick guys who they're going to be building around going forward. I mean, the writing is on the wall. There's no question about it. It makes sense for everybody, including the Cavaliers to trade him. But until that happens, he needs to honor the contract. He needs to play as as best as he possibly can. And he, like I said, he needs to lead by example and do what he can to help nurture these younger players. That's his responsibility. And the thing is, we've seen Kevin Love play really hard through tough times. I mean, there was a year in Minnesota where I was like, he's not the most valuable player, but he's the most valiant player because he's going out there and getting 40 20s every single night in a completely hopeless environment in a situation where the front office isn't even sure they're going to be giving him this big contract and all that stuff, right? Like he was going through a lot of drama. We know what it looks like uh, when Kevin Love is killing himself on the basketball court. And, And this ain't it, you know, as the kids would say. So that's where I criticize Kevin Love. But now in terms of does he have the right to pursue his own best interests, either in public or uh, in private. Uh, I think ash the you know it's out of the bottle at this point. You know, there's no going back. There's not going to be any way where we're going to be able to say okay, sorry NBA players like you have to fulfill every last second of every contract that you uh, you know, sign without requesting a trade or demanding a trade. I think in general it's better for that to happen behind closed doors. I think it's just cleaner. I think it's better for the fan bases. I'm in favor of the NBA stepping in and finding more aggressively players and agents who publicly request a trade and look if they're willing to eat the fine to make it known that's fine by me too go ahead and let that out there um but the most important thing is to not quit on your team is to do your job and we saw Anthony Davis do that last year too unfortunately you know he quit on the pelicans and we should hold that against him you know when we're having conversations about him and same deal with Kevin Love I think the smoothest way this gets resolved is if he keeps playing like kind of showcase style. Uh you know, between now and February, I think someone will be more likely to take a chance on him and I think that's that should be how he views his exit strategy. And if it doesn't work, they're probably going to shut him down early this season anyways, so, you know, there's no harm no foul. All right. We got some more fake trades uh coming in from uh, the listeners of the Open Floor Globe, Michael. Now, we spent a pretty good chunk of time on Monday's episode kind of breaking down different you know, possibilities in terms of which guys should be moved. And uh, the Open Floor Globe came through in a big-time way with their own fake trade. So I'm just curious, what do you think about these ideas? We can go through them quickly. Brandon says, the Knicks should trade Marcus Morris and Taj Gibson with a 2020 second-round pick from Charlotte and Charlotte's 2022 second-round pick for Kevin Love. Uh, And then he said, well, if you don't want to throw in Taj Gibson, you could maybe do Alfred Payton or Alonzo Trier or Reggie Bullock. So let's just boil this down to make it simple. Should the Knicks package together whatever minor assets they can find and be the landing spot for Kevin Love? I don't like this trade
1: for either side, really. I mean, if you're the Cavs, what like you're not moving kevin love for something like this this does not help you in the short term it does not help you in the long term i think you're holding out for a more you're holding out for either something that resembles a blue chip young prospect uh or a first round pick i don't think you're gonna get both of those things at this point in kevin love's career but you should get one of them you're not settling for second
0: round picks the best thing Cleveland would get from this trade would just be the right to not pay Kevin Love for the next three years, right? Um, that's sort of the number one benefit from the proposal. And so what you're saying is like, he's not a salary dump at this stage of his career.
1: Right. And they they don't even need to, like, they shouldn't be in a, necessarily in a rush to get off that money. I mean, they still have, it's not like their books are, uh, you know, going into the tax next season. So I just, I don't see it for them. And then if you're the Knicks, what like, why would you want kevin love i don't a 31 year old power forward when you already have 55 of them uh it doesn't i know you're you're you know in this hypothetical you're sending two of them to cleveland but uh yeah you're, you're what they should be doing is you know keeping the as much cap space open as possible and uh not giving up draft picks at all that's like the, the absolute so- worst case scenario for them
0: so if you're the Knicks, you're not feeling the pressure to fill the superstar void you created by trading away Chris Tapp's Porzingis for basically nothing? <laughs> uh, you're not rushing to plug Kevin Love into sort of a scruffy Porzingis type role there in New York?
1: Uh, no, I'm not. I mean, I'm probably going to lose my job anyway. So uh, and if I tried to get a deal like this done, that might just uh, accelerate that
0: process. So no, I'm, I'm sitting tight here. I don't think it makes any sense. Okay, I got you. All right, let's move on to another one from Max in New Zealand. He writes, I love the show. I drive a lot for work as a glass technician. I listen to every episode. That's what I'm talking about, Max. The commute pod. Thank you so much. He says, "Um, I like the trade idea for the Raptors for a reason that you didn't even bring up. And he's referring to my idea of Lowry to Utah for Mike Conley and two first round picks. He says, it's widely agreed that Mike Conley is struggling because he's used to playing with a stretch big man like Mark Gasol, not a diving big man like Rudy Gobert. The main benefits for the Raptors in this trade uh, would be the the picks for sure, but also reuniting Conley with Gasol, you could actually get a better version of Conley than what we've seen so far in Utah. So uh, Michael, is that any more convincing to you that uh, this trade needs to happen, that my spiciest... Uh, <laughs> idea from the last episode is just now going to be a foregone conclusion. I still am not a
1: huge fan, but I was, I mean, when you sent me over this question, I immediately texted you and I was really upset that we did not catch on to the Conley uh, Gasol reunion possibilities because that angle right there would just make it so incredible. It would just, it would be great to see those guys play together again in a competitive environment. I don't think, based on what we've seen from Gasol uh, this season, uh, and what we've seen from Conley this season, for that matter, uh, it would really be uh, would really make it worth Toronto's while. But it would be it would be fun to see.
0: Yeah, I mean, the only question there is like, how long is Gasol going to be in Toronto? Right? Is this going to be like a seventy-two hour reunion where they right. just you know they're going their separate ways later? I guess uh, that would be you know one potential hang-up. But I like where the emailer uh, is thinking, largely because he's supporting my idea. But he wasn't the only one who wanted to get in on the Cal Lowry trades. Gavin writes, It's time for the Raptors uh, to trade Lowry for more pieces so that they can become a nicer landing spot for Giannis when he becomes a free agent. Um, I spent an hour today trying to trade Lowry to the Clippers and the Lakers in the trade machine, and I couldn't get anywhere. So what other kind of Lowry trades can you guys think of? The most important factor is maintaining cap space for Giannis in 2021. And then he followed up a little bit later with this idea. Kyle Lowry and Rondae Hollis-Jefferson for Goran Dragic, uh, James Johnson, and Tyler Hero. And if you don't want to trade Tyler Hero... Uh, There's picks involved. And and Gavin concludes the Raps would get a young piece or two and retain the space for Giannis. The Heat would get an upgrade at point guard and a quality bench piece in RHJ. So, what do you think um, in general about what you would look for in a Kyle uh, Lowry trade and then about this proposal specifically?
1: Well, about this proposal, I do think the Miami Heat make a lot of sense for. Adding Kyle Lowry, if the Raptors are aggressively shopping him, I think the Heat will will listen and maybe even uh, start start a, a lengthy negotiation for this exact package. Like I don't see them, I don't see Miami really giving up someone like Hero, who I think should be untouchable. I love everything about his game. The fact that he's playing so confidently as a rookie, he has a skill set that is uh, really adaptable in today's league. Uh, And then on the picks run, I just don't, I I mean, they're moving picks is like just almost impossible for the Miami Heat at this point. It might even be illegal. Um, So that's, that's a tough one. It's tough to get them to Miami. What did you think about this particular package, Ben?
0: Well, I kind of thought that maybe Gavin is just like the pseudonym for Masai Ujiri and he's just emailing (laughs) us like the kinds of crazy ideas that he has to like be able to just like steal quality players from other teams after the whole uh, Kawhi Leonard trade because being able to just like sneak hero in at the end of that, uh, that was kind of the deal breaker, no doubt. Yeah, If I was Miami, I would be pretty interested in this idea they have a lot going on in their backcourt right now, a lot of positive momentum, a lot of good stories, a lot of great stories for the future, but they are tied to Jimmy's timeline. Lowry could be a bridge there. I like the potential fit between those two, both hard-nosed guys. Obviously, I think they have a, a similar worldview in terms of how they approach the game. They're good friends. Uh, Lowry's, Yeah, Lowry's spacing off of Jimmy, I think, would, would be beneficial, I do think that if you can find a way to use the Dragic contract as a lever to get uh, an upgrade at that spot, you do it for sure. Um, And then the question is just, do you have those minor assets that you're willing to part with and that are going to entice Toronto to make a deal? Um, I would not be surprised at all if those two teams come up in rumors as we get closer to the trade deadline, Uh, you know. Often or regularly, like I wouldn't be surprised at all if this is the kind of thing that gets kind of negotiated out in public a little bit. Um, it just it makes a good deal of sense. All right, we got another trade idea from Liam, and he wants the Oklahoma City Thunder and the Boston Celtics to get together. The Celtics would send Gordon Hayward, Memphis's first round pick, Robert Williams, and two Celtics first round picks for Steven Adams and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. So the idea for Boston, I think, would be to fill the void at center, get a potential future star in Shea Gilgis-Alexander, thin the ranks on the wing and part with Gordon Hayward and avoid kind of the contract issues that you're going to have trying to pay him and Jalen and Jason Tatum. Um, And then you'd be cashing out some of your draft assets to – I think, try to position yourself for a finals run this year uh, in Liam's mind. What do you think, Michael? I think the Celtics would never do this
1: trade. Um, I think that Gordon Hayward, if he had not broken his hand, would be uh, potentially an all-star this season. He's, He's great. I get what you're saying about the contract concerns going forward, and he has a player option. Uh, for next year, that I kind of think he's going to opt into personally, but I guess we'll we'll wait and see, and that's a different conversation for a different day. But giving up, you know, uh, Robert Williams is, I guess, fine for the sake of this, especially if you want to fast track this and and upgrade the position and get Steve, someone like Stephen Adams who would be ideal in Boston right now, but adding the Memphis pick, which is one of their most valuable trade assets, adding more first round picks, uh, to, to the pot just doesn't make a lot of sense for me, especially, uh, you know, this is a team that's core, you know, Kemba Walker is very important and he's not 30 yet, but he's, you know, he's up there in age, but the, the the fundamental core pieces are Tatum and Jalen. Those guys are really young. I would want to keep as many assets as possible for their primes, uh, as trade assets going forward and so um it's it's just not it's not something that i think makes them better in the short term or the long term
0: yeah i think my biggest problem with this trade is that at this stage i think of his career the idea of stephen adams is better than the player stephen adams and i think that he is not such a good solution at that center spot even though it's to me a pretty glaring hole for Boston to address here in the next couple of years. I don't think he's that long-term solution. I don't think he's, you know, like a top seven guy at his uh, position where you're really excited to grab him and you're going to cash in three first round picks to like go make that kind of a move. Now, I understand there's a lot of excitement and justifiably so around Shea Gilgis alexander I'm not sure he's so good that you construct a blockbuster just to get him either, right? So I think maybe Boston is giving up a little bit too much in this proposed package. And um, I am concerned going forward in playoffs this year and future years, What Steven Adams' impact going to look like? How helpful will he be to uh, teams, You know, assuming that his team is in the playoffs? Um, to me, I think he should be a trade piece. I know they love him in Oklahoma City. They're probably going to take the Nick Collison route with him and just try to keep him forever and ever and ever, and that's fine. Um, but to me, I just the postseason utility factor is is what holds me back from this deal. I do think Boston should consider Hayward trades, um, but really? I wouldn't be rushing into it, and I would want to be kind of bowled over. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's mostly like you're saying, it's the, it's the age of the of the two young wings and how much those guys are going to be sopping up as they go forward in terms of touches, limelight, shots, all of it, right? It just feels a little bit crowded. Um, it's not impossible. It's not like I would be rushing into it, like I said. Um, I agree with you that, you know, if he had been healthy, he'd be in the all-star conversation. Um, certainly before the, the injury, he was looking the best he'd looked, you know, arguably ever, or at least you know, right in line with his peak in Utah. Uh, but uh, I don't think that you have to keep him no matter what. I would not view him as an untouchable player if I was Boston. Interesting. I mean, I
1: won't, I won't call him untouchable, but I would be, I would, I would be shocked if they moved on from Gordon Hayward, given just a lot of. There's just a lot of things that have nothing to do with basketball that are in play here from his relationship with brad stevens to the injury serious injuries that he's uh, had uh since he went to the celtics uh, and all he's gone through there but i just also think that he is a critical piece of them trying to win now which they they clearly are because of you know how their salaries are structured and having kemba walker on his max deal I mean, if you if you trade someone like Gordon, it's for a better player right now. I feel like, and so uh, I don't know what who who is available, who's out there that makes sense, especially given how much money he makes, um, and who would be interested. Uh, but that's the type of piece that you're trying to get if you move Gordon. And I don't see I don't see that piece out there.
0: Yeah, personally, I just kind of think they're doomed to being a cute story right now. You know, like they can make a a run to the Eastern Conference Finals. They could kind of maybe make things interesting. They could, you know, get hopes raised high, but I don't see them making the finals this year and, you know, heading into next year, unless they kind of rebalance how this roster works, I'm not sure that that would be in the cards for them next year. So that would be my only motivating factor in exploring deals Um, But I'm not sure how much interest there would be uh, outside of Boston. I think what you're saying in terms of the the factors that would keep him in Boston, uh, you know, like the the Stevens relationship and the injury baggage and, you know, trying to like, you know, consummate how this partnership was supposed to work and, and kind of get it to a healthier, happier place where everyone's feeling like, hey, this was like the right move when he signed there in free agency a couple of years ago. I also just think that like all of the risk factors that have been accumulated along the way would factor more heavily into external teams' decision-making process as well, right? Like they're more likely to say, "Oh, Hayward's injury-prone. Oh, we'd have to work him in with uh, the other players that we have here, and that would take time. Um, he's not a top-five wing in the NBA, so it's not like we're acquiring a superstar. I just think there would be a gap in sort of the the evaluation of his value to a team." Boston would just value him more highly than the average suitor would. And I think that would probably prevent a deal. All right. One more fake trade here. It comes from Sam, a Chris Middleton and Milwaukee Bucks fan who is so glad to hear shade being thrown at DeMar DeRozan. Sam, all right. A man after my own heart. He writes, what if DeRozan's actually just a throw in for a larger deal? After spending some time on the trade machine, what about this trade for the Spurs? LaMarcus Aldridge and DeMar DeRozan for Zach Collins, Anthony Simons, Kent Bazemore, and Hassan Whiteside with the Portland Trailblazers. So in this deal, San Antonio is hitting the reset button hard. They're getting uh, two young, promising prospects in Collins and Simons, and then they're getting you know basically contract filler with Bazemore and Whiteside. So that kind of increases San Antonio's flexibility going forward. From Portland's standpoint... They are loading up with a starting lineup that eventually would include Lillard, McCollum, DeRozan, Aldridge, and Nurkic once he's back healthy. And then they have a few other bench pieces sort of remaining, you know, Carmelo and, and whoever else coming off the bench um, to try to, I guess, you know, make a run at some, some postseason noise this year. What do you think, Michael? Is this a trade that San Antonio or Portland or both should do?
1: I think stapled to this trade sheet would be a letter of resignation by Neil O'Shea if they if he were to actually wow. uh, do something like this. I like you I don't think he would ever make a trade like this. You can't move the future of your organization to very talented prospects. Uh, for win now, guys. Who uh, you know, really don't make sense in a Portland situation that you know isn't really built to win now. Again, okay. could you imagine trying to mesh Demar Derozan, C.J. McCollum, Dame Lillard, and LaMarcus Aldridge with like in a couple months to try to upseat the Clippers and the Lakers? Like, I, it's just it's it's fruitless.
0: I just I don't see it at all. Yeah, well, if O'Shea is tendering the resignation letter, is Terry Stotts demanding a race? Is that what's happening? <laughs> I mean, this is a real coaching challenge with all of those pieces together. Um, let me ask you, let me frame it a little different. If you were Damian Lillard in your prime, you know, all NBA level type player, not getting any younger, feeling like the season has slipped away already, um, you may not even make the playoffs or you might, but you know, you're probably going to get bounced in the first round would you approve of this trade? Would you want your team to kind of go all in in this type of manner to load up with some vets around you? I don't think so. Uh,
1: I think it fundamentally alters the the culture of your organization. Uh, It fundamentally, uh, obviously it fundamentally changes your your future outlook. And uh, I mean, when we talk about the Blazers, like, yes, this season is probably uh, not uh, you know they're, they're probably not going to accomplish their goals this season that's fair to say but I mean going forward like damus talked about loyalty he's talked about staying in Portland through and through thinking through uh you know the the tough times and so I don't think a deal like this necessarily even makes them that much better I, I feel like it could be it could ruffle his feathers if it goes south um Collins and Simon. Like, I just, trades like this in the NBA don't happen for a reason.
0: Yeah, I'm not as high as some people on both Collins and Simons, but I agree in principle that now is not really the right time for Portland to go all in. I just, it doesn't have that sense that like, oh, they're one move away from something really special. And you're taking on pretty big amounts of risk with Aldridge and DeRozan uh, I think like the fit questions are absolutely there. The age question is there with Aldridge. Um, you know, there's still, you know, maybe even hurt feelings from his last time in Portland. Are they going to be able to kind of put that thing back together? And then is there going to be a trust factor between, you know, Lillard and Aldridge in terms of like, once it's the playoffs, are they going to be able to be on the same page as Aldridge going to be invested? Because that was an issue, uh, earlier in his career before he left for San Antonio. Um uh, the DeRozan factor, Again, I just think that, like, it's really hard to build a winning playoff team if he's going to have the ball in his hands a lot. I think almost every shot he takes would be, uh, you know, takes away from Dame and CJ would be a minus for your team, you know? It's like, you just would prefer not to do it. So then you're in a situation where, like, can you bury him? You know, that's probably going to be pretty awkward. He's not going to be happy with that. I just think you're opening up a lot of can of worms. So I would not do this if I was Portland. If I was San Antonio, I would race to do this in a heartbeat. Oh, um, yeah. So... I I would tell our emailer, try to rebalance the trade here, okay? I think this is like, you know, too much in favor of San Antonio, but I like where you were thinking. All right, we are running out of time here, so I wanted to get to one last question, and this was a follow-up to uh, the question about garbage time from last week and and whether the Philadelphia 76ers should be allowing Ben Simmons to kind of train himself as a three-pointer shooter. Uh, late in games, uh, e- even if they're out of hand, basically, can he get some more reps and practice in, uh, even if it amounts to sort of running up the score or not handling end games like most teams handle them? Uh, Michael writes In that garbage time question, the emailer showed that his or her basketball philosophy is one of development. This person was interested in players pushing their skill sets and teams pushing their strategies. As a wind connoisseur, I'm sure Ben appreciates John Coltrane. Coltrane used some of his concerts almost like practice, like the listener suggested, to push his musical development and his band's development further. There is something about the added pressure of being live that can develop innovative strategies. Is this rude to the people who paid to hear Coltrane, that he experiments blatantly and uses the time to push himself? It depends on the listener's philosophy. If they are there to hear expertly played jazz standards, then maybe it's rude. But if their philosophy is to see jazz pushed to the limits, then even if Coltrane sometimes falls flat, those listeners will leave enlightened about the limits of jazz. Of course, these listeners happen to have to be real jazz heads who are theoretically interested in the limits of music to even be able to appreciate it. I could see a similar type of fan being interested in a coach using garbage time to experiment with radical strategies. A coach could push the limits of basketball with five centers or something like that. On one hand, it might seem gimmicky, it might seem rude, and it might fall flat. But a similar thing happened in 2015 when Steve Kerr experimented with lineups and revolutionized the game. Maybe it is rude. And if your basketball philosophy is to see expertly played, respectful games, then this approach could be distasteful. But if you want to see the next leap in basketball strategy, then you might be intrigued to see the limits of the game being probed in late game situations. So a lot going on there. I love the jazz comparison from uh, Michael. So I turn to you. Uh, another person named Michael what's your action what's your take to this strategy should we be more open-minded as a society and as viewers to the experimentation aspect the jazz-like improvisation uh, of late game scenarios I mean first of all I gotta
1: say that's the best jazz I've heard a lot of jazz basketball metaphors in my life and that's like top five that was incredible um I don't really, I, I think my stance on this stays where it's been, which is, I just don't see how this would be effective in a, in a garbage time situation where it's not even, it's not competitive basketball. So I don't really know what you're necessarily exploring uh, that can help you when, you know, you're in a meaningful situation, be it in a playoff game or something like that. I mean, the, the Steve Kerr thing, it doesn't really fall in line with experimenting and uh, in garbage time, that's not really what he did necessarily. And also, like when you look back at some of the great <clears throat> uh, situations where you know, uh, you know, you look at the the Miami Heat with with Chris Bosch, and he had an a, an abdominal strain, and that is the reason that uh, LeBron James was bumped up to power forward. You have. Uh, David Lee getting sick and Dray- Draymond Green kind of sliding into his role with the Warriors. So these things just kind of happen naturally they, and organically. They don't uh, happen with a coach who is willing to make himself uh, a laughing laughingstock in, a, in public. Uh, so that's kind of my stance here. But I do love the jazz metaphor, and
0: I did not know that about John Coltrane. Um, I think that the NBA actually does have some experimental uh, avenues, right? I mean, the G League is a great example. Like the Rio Grande Valley Vipers were practicing a lot of the stuff that the Houston Rockets ended up doing when it came to three-pointers and pace and all of that early. And it was like a complete incubator. And I don't think they were caring that much about wins and losses. It was about aesthetics and testing the math and seeing if it would work out. Um, obviously, you know, the, the Kings and Vivek Ranadive were kind of like famous for like, are they going to experiment with like having a full-time cherry picker? Right. And like, I don't think that ever happened. Uh, but that was another idea of like, okay, can you test, uh, the boundaries of the right way to play basketball in a formal basketball setting that maybe isn't the NBA itself? Um, I think we should keep in mind that players play year round. Teams have a lot of training camp and preseason opportunity to experiment. We have actually reached the point with lineup versatility where we're not all the way to the end with it. We haven't seen five centers. We haven't seen five point guards, but we're getting pretty darn close uh, to the functional edges of how crazy coaches can get uh, from that standpoint. So I'm not sure I see a major need here, right? Like uh, from the experimentation standpoint, um, I think that we have a lot of open-minded coaches in the league right now. I think a lot of the the traditionalists, there are still some of those for sure, uh, but I think there has been an evolution in the last five to ten years in terms of you know how you handle lineups uh, what you can get away with are you willing to sacrifice size for versatility and get away from more traditional looks that I'm not sure the the coaches are being limited as much as we might assume. Uh, I guess th- that would be uh, how I would phrase it, in part because they have access to really, really good analytics, which tells them which lineups work and which ones don't. And even if it's an unconventional lineup that at first blush might seem crazy, the numbers say it works. So go with it, right? And, and we've been in that era now for at least 10 years. So uh, I think that we're in the experimentation phase. I think there's Coltrane being played around us on a regular basis, Michael, I guess to use his analogy. That was, that was so beautiful. Okay, well, we should end it there before <laughs> before I really screw up any more music stuff. But thanks so much for all the, uh, the questions, guys. Uh, one point of uh, scheduling, you know, Christmas week is coming up uh, next week. We will have a podcast that goes out on Monday that will preview the Christmas Day slate. We'll go through every single one of the five games, talk about what we're going to be looking for, hit on some big picture themes uh, with all the teams that will be playing uh, on Christmas. Uh, it should be a lot of fun, so look for that on Monday. There will not be another podcast until the following week. We will pick up uh, the week after Christmas with our normal schedule. Uh, guys, you can help us spread the word about Open Floor by going to Apple Podcasts, search for our page, Open Floor. That's two words. Once you get there, scroll down. It will say Rate and Review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us get the word out. I'm on Instagram at Ben.golliver, on Twitter at BenGoliver. Sign up for my Washington Post NBA newsletter. It goes out every Monday. The link is at the top of my Twitter page. Michael is on both Twitter and Instagram at Michael, v, in Victor, Pina. And hey, Michael, until next week, I'll talk to you. Talk to you soon, Ben.